And will you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, a well-known passage. We'll be reading as our sermon text today, verses 1 to 11. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 11. You'll find it on uh, page 478 and 479 in your pew Bible, if that's the one you're using. Following the reading of our sermon text, will you then turn to the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 16, for some follow-up on this matter of time. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 11, followed by John 16, verse 25, through chapter 17, verse 1. Let us give our attention then to the word of God. The Holy Spirit says through Solomon, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And now we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, beginning at verse 25. Jesus, of course, is with his disciples. They have observed the Passover together, their, last, their first and last Passover together, as he has instituted the Lord's Supper. And he says at verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would now fill and illumine us so that we can take these words printed on the page and that they might be to us our life, our health, our prosperity. We pray that we would take them in and grow and live by the word of God. Help us then understand these things for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Our sermon text today places before us some very reasonable grounds for the Christian to enjoy heaping measures, heaping measures of both gospel comfort in our present circumstances and gospel courage for the future. And if you give it a moment's thought, it's not hard to see why this is so. Whether your present providential circumstances fill you with a very natural, very understandable grief at some untimely loss or disappointment, or whether they fill you with a very natural and understandable fear for the future, the Holy Spirit directs us here to consider the solid, immovable truth that in the eternal decree of your all-wise covenant God, there is an appointed time for everything and a time for every event under heaven, including that difficult situation you may now be in. And if you're not in it now, soon enough you will be. Even for those things, there is a time. And this observation of Solomon, moved as he is by the Holy Spirit, this observation is true. It's universally true throughout all time and space. There is simply no thwarting the moment-by-moment -moment unfolding of God's eternal decree in its every detail.
I want you to think about this just for a moment. The best laid plans of mere men, what comes of them? Typically, the best laid plans of men falter. They fail. To some degree, they fail. You're a young person, let's say. You're a young person planning to get yourself a good education. And as you look down the days ahead and the years ahead, you're thinking, okay, I'm getting this education. I want it to be a good education because I'm going to get a good career. And I'm going to marry. And I'm going to have this many children. And I'm going to enjoy my work. And I'm going to plant a family garden. I'm going to enjoy perfect weather for that garden every year. I'm going to can or freeze a pantry full of food laid up for my family's future. We have our plans for the future. And you imagine your plans are going to hum right along every day, every year, like clockwork, like a well-oiled machine. Which is only natural. And let me tell you, I'm with you on this. No matter what your age, I'm with you in having a grand vision, a dream for your life ahead. It's great. It's important. Don't leave home, children. Don't leave home without a purpose and a plan for your life. People who don't start out in life with big dreams and sensible plans to achieve them for the glory of God, those people often end up living pretty small, cramped, often miserable lives. So have a plan. That's important. But unfortunately, for any number of reasons, even clockwork and well-oiled machines can fail. And our plans can be dashed because things come up. Your plans hit a brick wall somewhere along the way. Mine certainly did number of times over the past century. My plans for my future have, uh, have been upset time and again, and eventually yours will too. That's how God providentially guides us out of our own ways and into his much better ones for us. So today I'm neither the veterinarian nor the pilot that I once thought I might be. Plans are good, plans are important, but even our best laid plans often fail as we're diverted into other better things. That's the way it is with men, changeable men in a changeable world. But it's not that way with our covenant God. He being who he is, there's not one single instance of God's ever changing his plans, not one single instance of God's ever fumbling the ball, ever. There's not one moment in all of eternity when God makes a providential mistake. Not a single event of our seemingly 
haphazard lives, our seemingly random lives, that God either anticipates so as to bring something to pass too soon for us, or that he forgets so as to bring it to pass too late or not at all. He does all things well. Do you know who needs to be reminded of these things? That there is an appointed time for everything? Certainly the anxious parents of a baby born not at full term of 37 weeks, but say at 30 weeks or 28 weeks or younger. Those parents, anxious, worried, they need this doctrine. So did the long ago fiancé of a friend of mine, a young man, Ed was his name, a Geneva College classmate who was killed in 1982 by a drunk driver on the way home from his wedding rehearsal. They need to understand this. There's an appointed time for everything. And so does everyone who wrestles with a devastating loss that anyone else might call untimely. We think these things untimely in part because we're prone to imagine that our cherished plans, whatever they may be, our cherished plans deserve God's endorsement, deserve God's blessing, that we are entitled to our plans. And there's no room in my plans for the death of a fiancé or a husband or a young father in the prime of his life or for the death of a child or for that diagnosis that no one wants to hear. It seems there's never a good time for those things to happen. And yet, there is an appointed time, even for those things, a time to die, a time to uproot, a time to weep, a time to give up as lost. Wisdom surrenders our best laid plans to his. And knowing that whatever our plans may have been, it's the good shepherd directing our steps. This can be a great consolation and encouragement to those whose lives have just been blown to bits. To know that every watershed moment of life takes place precisely at the moment God ordains it. This can be not only a spiritual comfort, but a source of great spiritual courage as well, because for as long as our covenant Lord and King, as long as he holds us safely in life and keeps our feet from slipping, you and I and those we love are, in the plainest terms, indestructible. While he wills us to live, we will live. 
Think it through, isn't it so? David was convinced of it as by the Holy Spirit. He writes in the 139th Psalm, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The full number of our days have been ordained by Almighty God. We ought therefore to be sensitive to his unfolding purposes and be ready always to conform ourselves, to conform our plans to them. Here in South Texas anyway, we plant our gardens in the late winter or very early spring and then harvest them in summer. And then we plant again in the fall and harvest around the time of the winter freeze. And other parts of the country, of course, plant and harvest at different times. But wherever we live, wherever we live, whatever the climate, every farmer and every gardener knows that there's an appointed time for the task. And they either conform themselves to God's timing or they go hungry that year. Now, some of you I know are trying to decide when to take that next step in your own life circumstances. You are waiting for the time and tide to change. Waiting for the time and tide to make your move. When to begin that schooling or that apprenticeship, for instance. When to begin a new relationship, whether to continue in it and when to end it, if necessary. Some young people, and even some who aren't so young anymore, they're thinking through when it might be the right time in their life and circumstances to marry. Or when it might be the right time to lay aside one career for the new full-time career of raising children in the bosom of a godly family. When we're sensitive to the times and seasons of life, we are only following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, who as a man lived out the years of his earthly ministry, keenly aware of the passing hours of his life and the coming hour of his atoning death. He knew that there was a time for everything. The Apostle Paul likewise recognized the presence of an orderly timetable that underlines God's unfolding plan of redemption. As Paul argues against the Judaizers, undermining the gospel of Christ alone in Galatia, Paul includes this in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. He says, we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary, uh, elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Christ came only in the fullness of the time. He didn't come a moment too early. He didn't come a moment too late. And dear ones, that's why the Old Testament is as long a book as it is. It's 39 books long, covering thousands of years of human history. Because that promised seed of the woman, promised all the way at the beginning in Genesis 3, that promised seed of the woman didn't arrive along with Cain and Abel and Seth and all the rest of that first generation born. He came much closer to the 101st generation of human history, but it was the right time. From Genesis 3 onward, God's eternal decree was unfolding according to plan as he was shaping all of human history, even the rise and fall of empires, for his own glory and the redemption of lost sinners in the days of Caesar Augustus, which is to say at exactly the right time. And if Jesus was born at just the right time, he also died at just the right time, didn't he? While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, we read in Romans chapter 5. How often do we hear Jesus in the Gospels saying, in one circumstance or another, my hour is not yet come. My hour has not yet come. An awareness that he still had more work to do, that he, his hour had not yet come, rendered Jesus absolutely fearless in the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God, even in the presence of these vicious men who absolutely hated him for it. But outside of Jerusalem, and up until that coming hour of his crucifixion, Jesus knew himself to be indestructible. He was absolutely safe in the tender loving care of his heavenly Father. And dear ones, I want you to reflect long and hard on this that until the appointed moment that he calls us home, so is each one of us. We're safe in our Father's care. Your life, your death, your wellness, your sickness, your joy, your sorrows, it's all by God's appointment. For the sovereign purposes God intended, and by his appointment only, each of us came into the world, and each of us will leave it at the right time. So in the time that you have remaining to you, however long that time may be, I urge you to live boldly, fearlessly, for Christ, your Savior, your king. Live boldly for him. 
This awareness of God's superintending providence is what made Stonewall Jackson the fearless Christian soldier that he was on the battlefields of Virginia a century and a half ago. Unlike so many soldiers both then and now, with Jackson, it's not safety first. It's duty first. And boldness in the execution of our duty and the results we simply leave in the hands of the all-wise God who loves us for the sake of his Son. Now we're told here in verse 11 that he's made everything appropriate in its time. But that word appropriate in the original actually means beautiful. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Let's think for a moment how that one statement has the power to transform our understanding of all these watershed moments of life. For instance, we instinctively know how beautiful a thing it is to give birth. It's a beautiful thing, the birth of a child. I mean, just look at this beautiful baby. Look at all these beautiful fingers and all these beautiful toes. Look at these bright little eyes, the color of the sea. We understand the beauty of birth. But is there actually a time when death can be beautiful? Loving hearts crying out at the moment of great-grandpa's death scream, no. There's absolutely nothing beautiful about this. This is terrible. Until they consider that just ten minutes ago, great-grandpa was suffering terribly, that he was connected to this vast spaghetti bowl of tubes and wires and monitors, and that now, just ten minutes later, great-grandpa's waking up and looking into the beaming face of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful death. And it's right on time in God's appointment book. Right on time. <clears throat> Can you think of a time when it's beautiful to shun embracing? We like embraces. Can you think of a time it's a beautiful thing to shun embraces? I can, actually. One of them is right here in the Bible. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. There are other places too, perhaps, but this is what occurs to me, where Paul says, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, 
that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There is a time to embrace. And the marriage bed certainly represents one of those very important times. But even there in the Christian home, there is a time to shun embracing by agreement for a time so as to give yourselves instead to the all-consuming business of prayer. Or killing. Is there a time that even killing can be beautiful? Well, this takes a little more thought, doesn't it? Even some imagination. But have you ever read the book of Esther? I submit to you that there is certain, there's a certain beauty in the poetic justice of the arch-villain Haman's being hanged on his own gallows, the gallows he built for Mordecai. If ever there was a beautiful killing of a terrible man, that was it. It was both a beautiful irony and a beautiful end to the story of Haman's persecution of the Jews. God's law dictates that there is even a time to kill. And when that time's upon us, civil magistrates ignore it at the peril of human society. God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And war. What about that? I was a soldier myself, an army chaplain, for 27 years, so I have seen up close and personal the unbelievably, unspeakably prodigious waste of lives and resources that countries squander on war. Our own no less than others. But can war actually be beautiful in its time? It's counterintuitive. And yet, given such alternatives as appeasement and surrender to evil, I'd have to say that at certain well-defined junctures of history, times of national tyranny, for instance, or invasion, and so on, even war can be beautiful, at least in a comparative sense. There's certainly a time for it, just as there's a time for peace. And when the time of war comes, may it be every bit as quick and decisive as our peace is long and free and prosperous. There's a time for both. There's an appointed time for everything, a time for every delight under heaven. If time permitted us today, we could... Dive into God's fourth commandment on the godly use of our time. We could delve into the Sabbath principle and its application at every level of biblical economics. Not only the Sabbath day, one day in seven, but the Sabbath year. And that once in a lifetime, Sabbath of Sabbaths, 
the Jubilee year. We could go there, but there's an appointed time for everything, including the bringing of a sermon to a close. So as I do that, what should we take with us from here, from this passage? First of all, let me remind you that God's sovereign reign over time, all of our seasons, all of our years, all of our days, this reign isn't merely theoretical or academic. It's not an academic thing that God is Lord of time. It's not something kept hidden away in the church or in the seminary classroom. The fact is that God's reign over time is written in the sky overhead. Every day, every night, God's lordship over time is written in the sky overhead. The sun completes its course, and when it does, there's evening and there's morning one day. The moon runs through its regular phases. How many days does that take? It takes about 28 days. Do you know how many different and distinct times the Holy Spirit lists here in verses 2 to 8? Each of them beautiful in its own way. 28. And the longest of his Ten Commandments is the one detailing for us the godly management of our time. God is sovereign over all of our days and all of our years and all of our lives. And it's written overhead. And it's written here. Second, let me just remind you that although some days are obviously very good days, very happy days, those, for instance, of the birth and baptism of covenant children, graduations, promotions, engagements, weddings. The Holy Spirit here declares that everything is beautiful in its time. So beautiful, in fact, that the word translated here in verse 1 as event, every event under heaven, the word in the original Hebrew actually means delight. There's a time for every delight under heaven. And then he goes on to list 28 specific times, 28 watershed moments of life, fully half of which seem not to be delightful at all when you're actually going through them. So how can the Holy Spirit, speaking through Solomon, actually call all 28 of these times a delight? I want to close with this. It wasn't a delightful thing for Joseph to be estranged from his jealous older brothers for virtually every day for the first 17 years of his life. It wasn't delightful for him to go out looking for them day after day on a mission of mercy, delivering food, only upon finding them to be apprehended by them stripped of his coat, thrown into a pit, pulled back up out of the pit, sold into Egyptian slavery, sexually assaulted, thrown into prison, and forgotten by every friend he ever had on the outside of the prison walls. 
Those weren't delightful events to him. His best days were bleak and every night black with darkness. That was Joseph's life for years. But those hard years in Egypt were built up of days and times that God himself appointed. So that when Joseph, now the prime minister of Egypt, when he thought back across the years, he was able to tell his brothers without any rancor, without any grudge, as for you, you meant it this for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph spoke well of the hard things that he endured in his day. And the Apostle Paul spoke, if not better, then at least more fully when he wrote the lines that have become so precious to suffering Christians of every generation for the last 2,000 years. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, says Paul, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, it is Christ Jesus who makes every event under heaven a delight. Sweet fellowship with him makes paradise out of prison. And the grave, he makes a feather bed. Amen.